This is the day the Lord hath made, so let us rejoice and be glad in it. I'm so delighted you've joined me tonight for this broadcast. As always, it is my prayer that you will receive a blessing both by the word and the music. And incidentally, I'm so grateful for the musicians who help us with their wonderful singing and playing. Would you hear now, please, the reading of God's word? It comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, beginning at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you join me, please, for prayer? O oh God, let your spirit be felt. Let your word be spoken. Let our hearts receive. It's in your name. Amen. Jesus has given us many comforting statements. For instance, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Lo, I am with you always, even to the conclusion of the age. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But undoubtedly, one of the most comforting statements Jesus ever made was this statement he spoke, his second word from the cross, when he said, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now to understand these words, we need to understand the total context of the situation. We need to focus again on the well-known three crosses of Calvary. When we look at Calvary's lonely hill, we see not one but three crosses. Jesus did not die alone. He died between thieves. Tradition says that these men were political revolutionaries, bent on overthrowing the yoke of Roman rule. If so, they were hardened criminals, and they would use violence in any way they needed to be using it. These men were hardened criminals, as I said, who were sentenced to die with Jesus. Three men, three crosses. The crosses are the same, the methods are the same. But what a vast difference in those three crosses. Now I think we can learn something about our attitude toward life and toward religion as we take a look at these well-known three crosses of Calvary. First, there is the defiant attitude. The defiant attitude. Ultimately, it leads only to regret. A man went to Alaska to live. After he'd been there about two months, he ran into a priest one day, and he said, Father, I just wanted you to know, I'm afraid I'm losing my faith in God and in the power of prayer. Why is that? The priest asked politely. The man said, Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was out hunting in the Alaskan wilderness, and I got separated from my group. I was all alone. I really thought I was going to die, and I kept asking God if he would save me. But nothing happened. The priest said, well, something must have happened because you're here today telling me this story. But then the man replied, the Lord had nothing to do with it. It was the locals that saved me. So many of us are like that. We think it was the locals that had to do with us. And yet we're too blind to see that it was God 
behind these locals on, and everything else. The scripture says, one of the criminals who were hanging there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He really meant me. Here we have a vivid picture of the unrepentant thief and his defiant attitude. He was really and truly a hardened criminal living in the lowest depths of sin. He was a person who had sunk so low that even the death of Jesus Christ had absolutely no effect on him whatsoever. After hearing Jesus pray for his persecutors, seeing the love of his mother for him, and hearing the loving words of his followers, it had absolutely no effect on him whatsoever. All he could say was, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Now, how do you suppose this man developed this defiant attitude? How does anybody develop this kind of attitude? We don't know. We don't know whether this man grew up outside the faith or inside the faith. Whether he had his rights stepped on, whether he was, a dream was snuffed out, or whether people treated him unfairly. We don't really know anything about him. All we know is that even in the company he kept, we're not absolutely sure what brought about this attitude. We often say, some are discouraged and weary of heart. We don't really know how many people we're talking about, but it's many. Many people are weary of heart, and many people are hurt, and they possess attitudes of defiance. They are bitter toward God. Let me tell you about a couple that I knew in a local city away from here, somewhere else. This particular couple were very active in the church. They were church officials and leaders. As a matter of fact, she even played the organ for the worship services on Sunday. But then tragedy struck, and their son was drowned in the lake. They became very bitter toward God. They blamed God. They quit going to church, any church. And so they completely went the other way. Theirs was an attitude of defiance. And then we have those marriages. Many people in marriages are told what they need to do, and they know what they need to do. They know what they need to do to keep moonlight and roses in the relationship, and yet they don't do it. But here's what they're told so often. Keep on dating. Remember the little things. Nurture the relationship. Keep a good sense of humor. Listen to one another. Don't try to change each other. Have a vital faith and practice that faith together. And then they don't even remember the five vitamins of a good marriage. Number one, I love you. Number two, I need your love. Number three, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Number four, may I help? And number five, thank you. They've been told these things over and over, but they don't practice them. So they don't understand it sometimes when their potential heaven on earth becomes something much less than that. They become bitter and blame God for the relationship or the problem. And then what about the individual who is never kind to anybody? This person criticizes people, is always blaming them, is kind of mean to them, and yet they don't understand later why people are not kind to them. And so what they do is they blame God for their misfortunes. They blame God. I repeat, there are many people carrying crosses of defiance in our time. All kinds of crosses, but crosses of defiance. You know, when people lose people in their lives, that is so tough. And all of us can empathize. But we cannot even empathize enough with people who, say, lose children. If we haven't lost one, we don't understand. We certainly feel for them. But we don't have to like the poison 
that makes them better toward God. John Ortberg said that when his son John was a small boy, he liked to play games and machines. One day he got hooked up with a tape recorder. And then he said to his mother, Mother, you know what's wrong with life? And she said, No, what's wrong with life? He said, Life doesn't have a rewind button. So think about that, this cross of defiance. Because life doesn't have a, that kind of button, a rewind button. It means that our crosses of defiance only can lead to regrets, only to regret. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise, but he wasn't talking to the unrepentant thief, tragically so. And then secondly, there's the penitent attitude, the penitent attitude. This second thief missed all the outward signs of Jesus' kingship, and yet he gave his life anyway. But he didn't know anything about the virgin birth, about the Old Testament prophecies, about the experience with Nicodemus or the raising of Lazarus or even the resurrection. He didn't know all of those things, any of them, things that we take for granted. And yet he discovered the heart of the gospel on the, Christ, on the cross. There with a bloody Jesus, a forsaken Jesus, an embattled Jesus, a suffering Jesus, he found the meaning of the cross. He found the meaning of a king. Not a king, but the king. The king. And it made a profound difference in his life. Listen to his testimony. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly have been condemned, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, he wasn't saying, remember my name. He wasn't saying, erect a monument for me somewhere. He was saying, at the end of time, save a place for me. Save a place for me. It was an humble prayer from an humble man. He was simply asking Jesus to save a place for him. Right here, we see a pattern. There's a pattern in the scripture for the penitent. And I want you to listen to this. First of all, we recognize our need. We recognize our need. He says, we've received the due reward for our deeds. You see, he recognized his, his deeds. And then secondly, he says, we know we can get help. Jesus, remember me, he said. Thirdly, he reached out for that help. And that help came to him in the terms of his salvation. How very important for us to remember that. A minister told us something that happened in the nursery school of his church. He said when the nursery school first started, there was a lot of tears. They would bring these little children there somewhere between the ages of one and three, and these kids would just be all upset because they were coming into an unfamiliar environment. Their loved ones were leaving them. They felt betrayed. So they sat around just crying and screaming. He said his job as the minister was to be sure none of them ran away. One day he went in there, and they were all crying around. He picked up a little boy by the name of Eddie. And Eddie was biting on his arm and saying, I want my mommy, I want my mommy. But as they moved around the room, this minister said, suddenly he heard the little boy as they focused on a picture on the wall. The little boy simply whispered, Jesus, Jesus. He was looking at a cross and then an empty tomb. And at that point, the image of Jesus touched base with this little child's needs and brought this child comfort. And then there was that penitent who not only knew something about this man was different and special, but he heard his word from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They know not what 
they do. And that is powerful in his life. Now, I think there are two lessons we learn from this. First of all, there are some things we learn from suffering that we learn in no other way. This penitent thief had many times when he could have given his life to Christ. He had heard the message of God. He had heard of God's love, but he never did. But in this moment, at his deathbed, he gave his life to Christ. Now, we don't like to suffer, but there are certain things we learn from him that we learn nowhere else. For instance, some of the Psalms were written out of the deepest part of people's sufferings. The Apostle Paul wrote some of his greater works out of prison. Dante wrote the Divine Comedy when he was in exile. Then we had Tennyson, probably the greatest poet of the 19th century. He wrote In Memoriam after the death of a friend. Bunyan was in the Bedford jail for 12 years, but then he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, the book probably read by more people with the exception of the Bible than any other book ever written. There are some things we learn. I don't know about you, but I kept up with that cruise ship. You remember that carnival cruise ship that lost power and was floating out in the Gulf of Mexico? Those people had a lot of sufferings and a lot of problems. But I read in one of the articles where one of the passengers said, we met in the morning down in one of the cabin areas, 45 of us for Bible study. And he said it lifted us up and it enabled us to realize we could be saved. And then I remembered a cruise I took about a year ago. My wife and I cruised to Alaska. We had no problem whatsoever. It was an enjoyable experience, but do you know how many people showed up for that worship service? Six. When things are going good, we don't recognize our need of God. But when suddenly we become conscious of our suffering or life or death or serious issues, suddenly we become acutely aware of our need of God. And I think that experience of the cruise ships points that out. On the carnival ship, 45 of them went Bible study. On the ship we went on where there was no problem, six showed up. I think that sends a message. And then there's another thing we learn from this passage. It's never too late to turn to Christ. How often we hear people say, I'm too old for this or I'm too old for that. But we can never say, I'm too old to turn to Christ. Christ is always available whenever we're ready to turn to him. And then thirdly, there's one other thing here. There's the grace-filled attitude. The grace-filled attitude. Now we come to the cross between the of the two crosses, the middle cross. This is the cross of Jesus. There is no holier spot on the face of the earth. This is the cross of comfort, and this is the cross of grace. Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is a Persian word, and it means walled garden. So when the Persian king wanted to honor one of his subjects, he would simply take this subject and bring him into the garden, and he would become a companion of the king. So when Jesus was talking to this penitent servant, he was promising him more than immortality. He was saying, I'm going to make you one of my companions in the eternal kingdom. It was companionship that he was promising him. Companionship, and that's what he promises not only him, but all of us as well. So paradise Listen to what it says. He says, today. Today, that means the same day you're crucified. It doesn't mean a thousand years from now. It means the day you're crucified. Today, you're going to be with me. You will be with me. It doesn't mean, here's an explanation. It doesn't mean you're sitting in the back of the room and I'm sitting up on the stage. It means we're going to be companions. 
together with one another. And then you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is the eternal companionship with God. And that paradise starts right now when people receive Jesus into their lives. Will Willimon, the bishop, he said, whenever and wherever we are with Jesus, we are in paradise. But all of us who are faith-filled Christians are fairly sure and we expect that this life is going to be more fuller, it's going to be more richer, it's going to be a greater life with the Lord after we leave the frustrations of this particular life. So it's important to remember today you will be with me in paradise. I read a book not long ago called Heaven is for Real. If you've read this book, you know it's the story of a little four-year-old boy. His experience when he had surgery was, and he didn't talk about this, he had serious surgery, but he didn't talk about it till four months later he told his parents about it. He said that while he was in that surgery, he was lifted outside his body. He said he communicated with the angels and he sat on the lap of Jesus. His, his father said he knew he wasn't making it up because during that time of surgery, he remembered exactly what every person was doing in his family, where they were, where they were located in the hospital. And so he knew he wasn't making that up. So back to the penitent thief. Where was he in the morning in prison? Where was he in the afternoon on the cross? Where was he at sunset? He was with Jesus in paradise. Todd Burpo, that little boy's father, said that in 2009, he and his family went to Dallas, Texas, and they were sitting with their editor in a Starbucks having a cup of coffee. And he said, all of a sudden, in the middle of the conversation, the editor looked over at Colton. He was the little boy who had the experience when he was four. Now he was seven. And he said, Colton, what do you want people to get out of your story? And unhesitatingly, he said, I want them to know that heaven is for real. Heaven is for real. Let us pray. Lord, thank you again for this word of yours, this hopeful, promising word of yours that comes to us. Help us, O oh God, to receive it afresh as if for the first time and to walk in trust and faith in you. Thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. Help us to be faithful in our living to show our appreciation. It's in your name. Amen. Thank you very much for joining me for this broadcast, and I pray that you have been blessed and you will be a blessing to all of those around you. Have a good evening. Good night.
soul. 